This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to Mind Your Business on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer of a growing community of businesses called the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. It shows about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If you've been struggling with something running your business, call us. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And let me emphasize, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening to the show is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. Joining me today uh, to help answer those questions is a special guest co-host, um, Adam Witte, founder of Advantage Media, Forbes Books, a marketing and publishing company that uh, specifically helps entrepreneurs publish books. Adam's, uh, Adam is always looking for uh, additional ways to uh, provide services to business owners, which is why he bought the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs about a year ago. And yes, that makes him my boss. Welcome to the show, Adam. Lauren, thank you so much for having me, and I am uh, doing my mother proud. She said it a great face for radio, so <laughs> I'm glad to put that in. Join the, the club. That's right. Uh, it's great to have you here. Why don't you uh, take a moment to tell us kind of whatever you embarked on here. You started primarily by helping business owners, uh, entrepreneurs publish books. What's what's the larger vision? And, and part of which is, you know, why did you hire me? <laughs> well, first and foremost, I'm really glad to be here because because I am one of the listeners. I'm an entrepreneur from scratch, uh, started Advantage out of a spare bedroom in my home in 2005. And uh, I have probably lived lived uh, the nightmares that many of the callers that call in will have and have also um, participated in the joys and jubilations of many of the callers as well. Uh, so the, the, the tagline for Advantage is we are the business growth company, which means we help entrepreneurs uh, grow their business through a variety of ways. You mentioned book publishing. When you write and publish a book and become the authority on the topic, that's a big business advantage. We do that through uh, Advantage and also through Forbes Books, uh, which is online at ForbesBooks.com. But we also have a lot of uh, marketing services, too. We have a marketing agency. We have a PR and media business that helps get CEOs and business owners on TV and on the radio because when you get great publicity for your business, it can be a huge driver. And then uh, with the Oxford Center, this is the ultimate premier community of entrepreneurs that are growing and scaling up a business. And as you just said, you know, we go through tough times. And when you have a community and a network of like-minded entrepreneurs that are going through the same things that you are, this is your support group that can help you get through those tough times and can really help you take advantage of the high times when you're having great success. So for us, it's all about helping entrepreneurs grow and all of these different businesses that we own and operate are a big uh, piece of helping entrepreneurs on that uh, journey. All right, so with all of that in mind, uh, let me introduce our uh, featured guest today, Ari Weinzweig, co-founder of Zingerman's uh, Community of Businesses, Zingerman's Delicatessen, the whole uh, operation in Ann Arbor, which uh, I think is, you know, you can arguably say is one of the most influential businesses uh, in America, uh, certainly over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. I've wanted to have Ari on the show for a long time. He's a great guy, a great speaker. Uh, he and his co-founder, Paul Saginaw, have built uh, a, a really uh, amazing uh, business, and we're going to hear all about it. Welcome to the, welcome to Mind Your Business. Sorry. Thanks for having me on. Real pleasure. I, I'm going to um, maybe embarrass you a little bit, Ari. I, I want to start by uh, telling a little story. I don't know if you would remember this or not, but about ten years ago, I sat in on a talk that you gave uh, to a group of maybe twenty or thirty business owners. And at a certain point, you were telling them the Zingerman story, and then you brought in a couple of your employees, a couple of frontline employees who I believe worked in the deli, and you introduced them. Uh, you told us to ask them anything. You left the room, and they just started talking about you know their jobs and what their jobs meant to them, and their passion for their jobs uh, came through so quickly, so loud and clear that I kid you not, there, there were there were business owners in the room who who were brought to tears. You know, 
I think everybody looking at it was thinking the same thing. Why aren't my employees engaged like this? It, it was really an, an amazing experience for me. So my first question to you, how'd you do that? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Imperfect, imperfectly. Uh, no, I, well, I mean, I actually speak about that and I write about it. Uh, to be clear, we never get it perfect. We got all the same problems everybody else does, but, um, I guess there's a lot of things that go into it. I, I've started to look at business more and more like an ecosystem in nature. And when you think about an ecosystem, of course, there isn't any one singular thing that makes it work or not work. But there's, to the contrary, there's a lot of things coming into play. But I guess the biggest frame that I typically give it, and feel free to interrupt at any point, of course, with, with questions or whatever, but uh, in part one of the business book that I wrote, uh, there's an essay called 12 Natural Laws of Business. And it's my ever stronger belief that all successful organizations, whether it's a for-profit, not-for-profit, big business, small business, basketball team, doesn't really matter. Any any organization that's thriving, I won't say necessarily making the most money, but that's succeeding in a holistic and meaningful way, is living in harmony with those natural laws. And they don't have to know what those natural laws are. They just they're doing it because it seems like the right thing to do. I'm sure many of the listeners right now are are doing them as well. Uh, what I started to realize, having worked with that concept for a number of years, uh, I was actually presenting at the Inc. Magazine conference in D.C. And uh, Gary Hirschberg, uh, at the time from Stonyfield Yogurt, was presenting before me. And I hate PowerPoint, but he clearly loved it because he had like 80 million, you know, gorgeous <laughs> slides with sound effects and colors all over the place. And he was talking about environmental issues and, you know, how basically we were violating nature on the planet, depleting natural resources, the impending crises that were coming and all of that. And it sort of dawned on me as I was listening to him that what he was talking about was environmental violate nature, create a crisis, but then in a, in a comparable way in workplaces, people were violating the natural laws of business and they were creating a comparable energy crisis in the workplace. And I ended up writing about that too. And that, that workplace crisis manifests in, or, or appears in the form of apathy and disengagement and cynicism and all the things everybody is so frustrated about. And I started to realize when you violate human nature, then you you sort of deplete people's natural desire to work hard, their natural desire to be a part of something great, uh, their natural desire to make a, a meaningful difference and to give it everything they got in the interest of creating something positive. And I, I think the, the, the last piece of that, and then I'll shut up for a minute, is, is just <clears throat> I realized in hindsight that although I had never thought about it this way, uh, early on, <clears throat> we, we essentially at Zingerman's, we're, we're involving everybody in the organization and learning how to run the business. And we're teaching them how to be a think like a leader and think like a business person from the time they start. And I think that's a huge contrast to what most places do, which is even if they want to treat them well, is just basically teach them how to do their job and leave them out of the bigger picture. And I think when people are missing the big picture, the decisions that they make are often they look really silly to us, but based on the limited information people have, they think they're good decisions, and that creates a lot of the disengagement that you're talking about. Uh, Ari, this is uh, Adam. So I, I've got a big question for you, and I think it's probably on the okay. minds of many business owners. So you know, I, I like to use the adage, the old Mark Twain quote: "The object of life is to make your vocation your your vacation." And I think yeah. most entrepreneurs adage. You know, most entrepreneurs were able to live that, but but for the person working in an organization that you know is an employee, or you know, as the government would say, a W two, um, how how do you create that environment? And I know there's a lot of different ways, but you know, if you were to say, what are the top two, three things to create an environment where your employees begin to see it as a calling more so than just a J O B a job? Well, I, I've written a lot about. Uh what I would say is the difference between, on the one hand, bad work, which is sort of when you're violating the natural laws of business, you, we create bad work. It's it's not interesting. It's in fact, it's destructive. People often leave their job, as you said, angry, frustrated. Basically, they're trying to do as little as they have to to get by. Uh, if we move along a continuum from there, we get to good jobs, which are you know more pleasant. The benefits are nice, but it's still not what you're describing, which is 
a passion and something really meaningful. And I, I, I call that good work. Uh, and I, I think that's what we're trying to create. And I think that when we, A, live in harmony with those natural laws, and B, when we honor the, what I would suggest is the reality, which is that everybody's capable of doing great things and wants to do great things, and our job as organizations is to help them achieve those great things, then when we do that and then we give them the tools, the teaching, the learning, the support, the encouragement, and often, you know, constructive criticism too, but when we give them the tools to help them to, to achieve that greatness, then it's much easier to get them excited and, and bought in and, and going after something that makes their own life more meaningful while at the same time helping the organization. Ari, can you spell that out for us? What's the difference between yeah. good work and bad work? It's in a delicatessen, for example. Well, I think bad work is where you show up, you get paid. Uh, if you're lucky, nobody totally yells at you or embarrasses you or, you know, rages at you. Uh, you watch the clock until, you know, it's time to go home. It's basically like you're playing for the worst team in the league and it's the 78th game of an 82-game NBA season. You know, it's, it's painful. Uh, I think good work is where you're, you believe in what you're doing. I... I you know, you care about what you're doing, and the workplace cares about you. Uh, you're excited to go, even if you have a million other things in your life that you're also excited to do. And I think that when you're doing good work, it's it's actually energizing because you're learning, you're making a positive difference for yourself, for the people around you. Uh, very importantly, you believe in what you're doing, and, and the place in which you're doing it believes in you. And I think the energy, you know, back to the energy crisis is one of the biggest indicators of what that is, because... I think, you know, imperfect as we are, it's it's an, it's a it's a fairly common comment is that people will say they came in in a sort of so-so mood, but they left feeling really great. And that's actually the opposite of what I would say in this typical workplace most people are going to tell you. Usually <laughs> they came in in a good mood, but they leave in a bad mood. Uh, I think our job is to create energy. And unlike the, the natural resources on the planet, this kind of energy is actually endlessly sustainable. All right, Ari. I want to ask you uh, to uh, to walk us through uh, a little bit of the uh, the Zingerman's journey. Um, how you got from a you know a startup deli to where you are now. But I want to emphasize yeah. to our listeners that uh, this is their opportunity to call in and, and ask you questions. Our number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight. Six six. You can ask Ari anything, and in fact, we have a, a caller on the line right now, Kyle in Minnesota. Welcome to Mind Your Business. Hi guys, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? So uh, very similar to his comments uh, regarding um, the traditional practice of management making decisions uh, without the uh, feedback of their of their own employees that are working on the projects. Um, I'm in a market uh, web development, digital strategy, where a lot of times the uh, client it isn't aware of the needs that they have to translate uh, between their develop developers and their business management. How do you go about explaining uh, the value that you could provide in something that they haven't worked with before? Well, you know, Kyle, maybe I can take a crack at that because I find myself oftentimes in a very similar situation with you, you know, as the CEO of Advantage and Forbes Books. We create uh, business books for entrepreneurs and CEOs and business owners. And, and the truth is there's a lot of business people that don't think that they're an author. They don't see themselves as an author. And they certainly have never really thought about writing or publishing a book. And if you say, hey, you want to publish a book? come talk to us, then uh, if there's 100 people in a room, maybe five or six will come back to talk to you. But if you say, who in this room would like to be seen as the authority in their field? Who in this room would love an endless flow of leads coming to your website or calling your office to want to see you or talk to you? Uh, how many people in this room would love to get free publicity? They'd love to be on TV. They'd love to be interviewed on the radio or featured in a newspaper or a magazine. Almost everybody in the room will put their hand up. And so the analogy that I give of me to you is that instead of selling or marketing the product that your company offers, I think you really need to focus on selling and marketing the benefits 
of what you do, the benefits and how that accrues to the customer. Because everybody that buys from you, I'm certain that they want the benefits that your company brings. They just may not want the product that you bring. But once they realize that your product delivers those benefits, they're going to be a whole lot more receptive. How's that look for... Ari, from your perspective, how does that look? Um, do, do you does that issue come up for you in terms of providing products or services that uh, you have to convince people they want? Never. <laughs> That's a big lie. You're all looking for five dollar candy bars and you know forty dollar olive oils, and cheese they never heard of. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's the nature of our work. I mean, I think that uh, you know two things just because I already brought it up on that natural laws list. The One of them is that we need to have compelling reasons for our customers to want to buy from us. And I think if we don't make those reasons clear, then they're not going to buy. I mean, it's, you know, there's a million ways to live life that leave us out of the equation and most of the world will be fine without us. So, you know, in, in our world, we're, we're focusing on artisan food. We're focusing on foods and services that people aren't familiar with. So, it's always about helping them to see just what Adam described, you know, how, whatever it might be, this sandwich, this piece of seafood, this bread, this brownie, whatever is going to impact their life. So, uh, you know, on our end, uh, we give taste to anything for free. Now we're not in the software, but if there's ways to let people experience what good design looks like versus what bad design looks like, I think that's going to hit home really well. Uh, I always remember I, I, Years ago, uh, I was speaking to uh, a group of builders, and it was around 2009, I think, 2010. So the economy was totally in the tank, right, which is one of the worst possible times to be in the construction industry. And, you know, one of the, I don't know, 300 or so people in the audience, you know, he raised his hand and he said, hey, you know, whatever, it's easy for you, which I don't think it is. But, of course, from the outside, you see to everybody else. And he goes, you know, but people don't understand the difference between quality construction and bad construction. And I said, look, I'm, I'm your target customer, right? I don't know anything about construction. I don't claim to know anything about construction. So if you if you show me three windows and one's 75 bucks and one's 750 and I don't know any more than that, I'm going to pick the cheap one. You know, I don't know. But if you, if you sit there and you, you bring me into a room and you show me the cheap window and you show me how it doesn't hold the heat or keep the cool in, if you show me how it's louder and clankier and then you show me the nice one and you show me how I'm going to be in the house for 20 years, I'm going to pick the more expensive one in a heartbeat. But without that experience, you're, you're not really giving me a chance to make an intelligent, informed decision. And then you're frustrated with the decision I made. I would say blaming the customer is, isn't going to help. But providing me with a chance to experience what quality would really mean to me, you know, as per what Adam just said, would be hugely meaningful. Yeah, and and Kyle, I'll, I'll add one more anecdote. Um, so one of Ari's businesses is Zingtrain, and it's a training and professional development company. Uh, I think Ari can attest to this. If you ask any business owner if they need training, uh, they're going to say no. Nobody thinks that they need training, and so it's very hard to sell training. If, on the other hand, you sell phenomenal customer service that has your customers coming back and purchasing again and telling all their friends about your company, if you uh, sell the most educated uh, staff in the world that will treat your customers like gold, that will be more productive, and that will generate more revenue and more profit for your business, well, well, now my ears are open, and now what you're saying I'm listening to. So, yeah, the product is training, but, but I don't sell training. I sell the benefits of the training. And I think, Kyle, again, you know, for, for your business, if you really focus on selling the benefits of what your company does and the software that you provide, as opposed to focusing on selling software, uh, I think that'll pay dividends for you. Kyle, have we helped? Yeah, that is fantastic, guys. Um, uh, really um, gives me a good path forward to um, kind of describe the needs that I know that they already have and uh, how I can fill them um, to get them get them excited and go for the more expensive window. So really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Kyle, thank you for your phone call. Really appreciate it. If you have a question about your business or something you're struggling with, please give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 
Ari, if I can connect the dots a little bit, um, yeah. to uh, to sell that more expensive window, you need yeah. a well-trained employee who can yeah. do that, and you need to take the time to make sure they know what they need to know. I, If I'm not wrong, correct me if I am, uh, you guys go out of your way to make sure your people know everything they need to know about cheese or whatever it is they're selling. Well, I don't think we ever, none of us know everything we need to know. But okay. I think we, we certainly we certainly go a long ways uh, to provide a lot of training. Uh, the, the, well, actually, I have a new pamphlet out on art and business, but the most recent book I did is on beliefs uh, in business. And I don't, I'm not talking religion, politics, or sports, but rather what we believe about everything, people, ourselves, our organization, business. Uh, and, and in this case, what you're talking about is really comes down to what we believe about training. Uh, and in fact, it's actually one of the, the, the first examples I use when I teach the, the self-fulfilling belief cycle that's in, in that book and sort of the core of the whole book. So if you, as the leader of the company, believe that, that training is a waste of time, you will, of course, then invest zero time and money in training. The people who then work in your organization, when you don't do that, will start to believe that, you know, you don't believe in them. There's no real future. Uh, they're not going to get the vocation that you were asking about earlier about, so that basically it's just killing time until they can get into a better job. What kind of work will they then do? Pretty mediocre, as, as little as they have to. And your original belief that training was a waste of time is, of course, reaffirmed because you see how poorly the perform how poor the performance is of the employees. If you reverse the, the, the belief that you and I as the leader have and you believe what I have and well, you believe what I do, and I, I would guess what Warren and Adam believe, which is that training is a great investment, then what do we do? We have, I think, uh, somebody's last count was about 75 different internal classes that we teach for our staff. Classes on finance, classes on visioning, classes on customer service, classes on food, food safety, uh, lean process improvement, all those kind of things. What do they start to believe? That they can learn a lot and grow as people and individuals and benefit themselves, their families, and the business at the same time. What kind of work do they do? The kind that you describe, Lauren, when they walk into the room and talk about their jobs without any leader or boss standing there. And what do we say? This training's great. We ought to have done more. <laughs> so I, I, I think the point is that the belief of the leader is having a massive impact on the, on, on the organization. It's a self-fulfilling belief. Uh, and our belief is very much, as you described, that training is a hugely positive thing. And in fact, as Adam said, we have a whole business in train that focuses just on that. And, and, and Ari, you know, you make such a valuable point, and, and I see this all the time. You know, there's some entrepreneurs and business owners that see their employees as an asset. And, yep. and there, there's other business owners, quite frankly, that see their employees largely as an expense that simply needs to be contained. Or a necessary evil. <laughs> or, that's right. Or, or a necessary evil. Um, and, and so you just said, you know, philosophically, you know, we all believe, I think, that it's far more productive to philosophically believe that your people are an asset as opposed to a liability. But, but for somebody that's maybe on the fence and somebody that, that you know, sees it more as a liability, but, but they're open to seeing it differently, you know, what do you say to that person? Well, I mean, I guess I'd say a couple things. So having studied beliefs, which a little seed turned into a 600-page book, so I, as you might imagine, I did a lot of studying. <clears throat> uh, you know, you can't make anybody change their beliefs. Uh, beliefs are not genetic. They're all learned. Uh, and we can choose to change them if, as per that self-fulfilling belief cycle that I very briefly described, uh, we're not getting the outcomes that we want. We can continue to blame the other people's behavior, but we might also, I learned the hard way, want to examine our own beliefs because we flip our own belief, we get different outcomes. So I think, you know, as per whatever lean or process improvement, they could try a little experiment for a month and just choose to believe for a month that employees have enormous potential and that we as the organization have might not have done the best possible job of helping them realize that potential. And what if we, for a month, we just decided to believe everybody was the next, whatever, LeBron James of our industry and started to work with them uh, as if they were at the beginning of a long process of development. And I, I don't know, I'll bet you that although there'll be shortfalls and mistakes, just like LeBron James misses shots, and I'm sure when he was 
in high school he made some bad plays. Uh, that'll be true for employees too, but I think in the long run we have great potential to get there. Uh, the other thing that I would add, you know, respectfully would be even to take it further than that is is to take the employees off the balance sheet and not just look at them as an impersonal asset or liability, but more as a person who's equal to us and, and knows <clears throat> as much as we do, even if what they know is different than we do and has as much or more potential as we do. And and I think that when we start to look at it that way, then we're back to the beginning of our conversation Then we're honoring human nature and we're helping them to feel good about themselves. If they don't feel good about themselves, they're never going to do great work. And we help them to contribute more positively to the organization in the process. All right. Could you give us a uh, a, a quick look at, at um, how you went from having a very successful uh, deli, how you set off down the path of building the community of businesses that you now have in Ann Arbor? Yeah, I should probably back up to the beginning because we never actually answered that question. <laughs> Go for it. So let me let me let me give the history. So uh, personally, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I went out to Ann Arbor to go to school at University of Michigan. I studied Russian history, as you know. Uh, I studied the anarchists, which we could also talk about if you want. Actually, <laughs> writing a lot. I write a lot about. Well, I write a lot about anarchism in business, and and it's a uh, very positive application to to modern day organizational life. Uh, after graduating with my history degree, of course, there's nothing you can do with a history degree, which was not frustrating or disappointing. I, I already knew that I was supposed to go back and get more degrees, which I failed on miserably. But uh, mostly when I graduated, I just knew I didn't want to move back home. And in order to facilitate that financially, I needed a job. And I had driven a cab part time in school. That wasn't all that much fun. And so I decided I would try to find a job in, uh, in town. And one of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant. So I went in there and applied for a job as a server and they told me they'd call me back but they didn't and long story short I reapplied like three times over six weeks and I ended up finally they said do you want to wash dishes and I said sure and that's how I started in food so I really just lucked out in terms of finding a line of work that I really love uh, I came to love cooking I came to love the food business and then also meeting great people so Paul Saginaw who you know who's been my partner and all this from the get-go was the general manager uh, Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners at our bakehouse, was a line cook. And Maggie Bayless, who you mentioned Zinc Train, she's the founding partner of Zinc Train, was, was a cocktail waitress. <laughs> so I got no idea why we were all in there together. But lo and behold, here we are, like literally 40 years later, and we, we still like each other. So I, I started working, uh, you know, to learn how to cook and prep. And I worked for that restaurant group for about four years. Uh, I reached a point, which is really sort of what Adam <clears throat> was getting at earlier about employees not feeling fulfilled in their work. I didn't hate going to work, and it wasn't a bad company. So I, I guess in our earlier context, I'd say it was a good job, but not enough. And so I gave two months' notice, November 181, uh, not knowing what was going to come next. Paul had left a few uh, years before that and opened a world-class little fish market in town and he happened to call me like two days after I gave notice not knowing I had given notice and said there was this little building coming open that we should check out and in Detroit where he grew up <clears throat> pardon me you could get good deli food and in Chicago you could get it but you couldn't get it in Ann Arbor and so literally within like a week we decided we were going to open and somehow we opened up four and a half months later I have no idea how we went that quick. Today it takes about four months to get a meeting set up. <laughs> They're not doing anything, but somehow we renovated the building, did the menu, costed everything, painted the walls, and reopened March 15th, 82. So we're coming up on our 37th anniversary. Uh, the original space was 1,300 square feet, 29 seats, 25 sandwiches, a little bit of what now we would call specialty food. Uh, me and Paul and two employees, and that's about it. So that's how we got started. Uh, the general wisdom when we opened was we were pretty much doomed to fail. Ann Arbor had, had 10 or 12 delis go out of business in the previous decade, so everybody was <laughs> sure we'd be closed within a year. Uh, of course, it's an industry where like 80% of businesses in the food world that open are, are closed within a year, so they had good reason to think that. <clears throat> uh, there's still no parking to this day, and everybody told us it was a bad neighborhood and we shouldn't open there. And, of course, six years later, they were all our best friends, and we were geniuses, and it was a perfect location, and Ann Arbor always needed a deli. So this, <laughs> this pattern of 
it'll never work. Oh, I was behind it from the beginning, I think, has been played out with us and really everything meaningful that's probably ever happened in the history of humankind. Anyways, fast forwarding. Uh, 1993. So we had been in business 11 years. We'd expanded the physical space twice. We were, you know, I don't know what we were doing in sales, but we probably had about 100 employees. We'd been in New York Times, Gourmet Magazine, all the, at the time, big press. So in quotes, you know, society would have said we were a success. But of course, like probably everybody listening to the show right now, we weren't rich. We weren't retiring. Uh, we were faced with daily challenges. And, uh, Paul sat me down on the little bench out front of the deli about 10 in the morning one summer day, and he sort of looked at me and he goes, okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, in 10 years, what are we doing? I'm like, I don't know, man, but I got work to do. And he's like, no, this is really important. I'm like, what's important is if I don't get back in there and get the sandwich line set up, we're going to get screwed today at lunch. And he's like, this is critical. <laughs> And he was getting really upset. Now, in hindsight, I probably know he couldn't sleep for like six weeks worrying about it. Uh, and, and in hindsight, what he was asking me is, what's your vision? And we, as you know, now teach a whole bunch about visioning. But at the time, we didn't really discuss it. Uh, he, In hindsight, I could say pretty clearly he instinctively or intuitively or whatever sort of sensed that even though we hadn't written a vision the way we do now, we had kind of fulfilled our original vision. And that we had reached a point which now I would equate to sort of midlife or graduating college or whatever. Like you did this thing everybody told you you couldn't do. In quotes, you're a success, but you don't really know what's what's next. And I don't think he had a vision in mind, and I certainly didn't have one. It's not like we weren't trying to improve. But I could say with great uh, strong belief right now, there's a big difference between trying to improve what you have and having an inspiring and strategically sound vision that's planted way out in the future. And so that conversation triggered lots of arguments, a lot of cursing, a lot of long walks and eye rolls. But we kept coming back uh, literally and figuratively to the table until we ended up writing for the first time actually a formal uh, documented vision the way we now do it almost every day. And that vision was called Zingerman's 2009. So we actually went 15 years in the future. It was about six pages long. It's in the back of the first business book. And uh, that vision outlined what you just asked about, which is uh, this creation of a Zingerman's community of businesses. So we wanted to grow, but as per the new pamphlet on art, I really like unique and original things. And I always, for me personally, hated the idea of opening more delis because it just seemed kind of like it dilutes the energy and dilutes the uniqueness. So I didn't want that but we wanted to grow. So we thought, well, let's open other Zingerman's businesses. So all operating as one organization, but each business would have its own specialty. And then we also really hated sort of what happened when you had the manager reporting to the regional manager, reporting to the next manager, to the VP. It just seemed like you'd lose the passion. So we always had the idea we would put have managing partners in each business you know, that would be owners like a lot of the people listening to the show now who were really passionate and had money on the line, their house on the line, et cetera, and that we would operate as one organization, you know, with these semi-autonomous pieces. So that's how we got that going. Pretty cool. Well, listen, we got to take a break. When we come back, or I want to ask you a little bit about uh, where you've ended up. Give us, uh, t- tell us a little about the, the businesses that uh, comprise the community of businesses and uh, how you pick them and how they operate together. Um, if you have a question for Ari or for Adam, uh, please give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We're going to take a quick break, but our producer, Michelle, is standing by. You don't need to wait. Call now. Avoid the rush. We'll have more with Ari Weinzweig and Adam Witte in just a minute. You're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with my co-host today, Adam Witte of Advantage Media Forbes Books, and with our featured guest, Ari Weinzweig, co-founder of the Zingerman's Community of Businesses. He's the author of many books, including most recently, The Art of Business, published by uh, published in Ann Arbor by Zingerman's. Uh, if you have a question for Ari or for Adam, 
uh, either about their experiences or something related to your own business, give us a call. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Ari, you told us uh, how you got the deli off the ground and how you uh, came to the realization, you and your partner, Paul, that you uh, needed a vision uh, to go forward. Bring us up to date. Tell us where you are now. How many businesses are there in yeah. the community of businesses? What's it look like? Yep. Well, we, we uh, so that vision was written in 93, 94 for 2009. In 07, we wrote the next vision, which was for 2020. And uh, that's also in the back of the first business book. And we're actually now working on the next vision, which I don't know, I think will be 2030 or 2032. But current state, uh, I don't know, depends how you count. We have about 12 businesses. Uh, They're all, you know, like I said earlier, different. So there's still just the one deli, but we have a bakery. Uh, we have a mail order business. We ship food all over the country at Zingerman's.com. Uh, Zing Train, you mentioned we do training seminars and uh, speaking stuff all around the country. Uh, we have a little candy business. We have a coffee roasting. Uh, Zingerman's Roadhouse is a sit-down restaurant that does all regional American food, beers and wines and that sort of stuff. Uh, we have a, a beautiful uh, 1834 farmhouse, 1830, or, yeah, 1834 farmhouse, 1837 barn called uh, Corn Man Farms, where we do weddings and events. We have a little Korean restaurant called Miss Kim. Uh, we have a creamery where we make handmade cheese, and we have our newest formal business, which is our food tour business. So this is like small groups uh, led by Christy Brayblack, who's the managing partner there, and go to various spots in Europe, U.S., whatever. And uh, I think I'm not forgetting anything, <laughs> but we have about 700 employees uh, year-round, and we'll do about $64, $65 million in sales this year. Uh, there's about 20... I think managing partners in the various businesses. And then five years ago, we added three, uh, what we call staff partners. Uh, we actually govern the organization at the partner level by consensus, uh, of the partners and the three staff partners sit on that consensus, which has been really one of the most positive things we've done. And then, uh, we've been working hard, uh, for, I don't know, six, seven years to figure out ways to do employee ownership, which isn't that easy because the Zingerman's community of businesses doesn't even legally exist. Uh, and we have about 20 different, you know, corporate entities or whatever LLCs, but uh, we have now about 180 something, uh, what we call community share owners. So that's non that includes managing partners, but these are people generally who are not managing partners uh, and now own a share in the organization. All started from a deli. What do you think? Wow. So, uh, Ari, um, if I'm like most listeners, I'm thinking, holy smokes, we go from one deli, you know, with probably a dozen people and probably less than a million dollars in sales. Two people. Okay. (laughs) Two people. um, Dare I ask what your annual sales were the first year? You could ask, but you think I remember? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably enough for some for some pizza and bubble Probably, gum. Pro- Here's what I could tell you: it was a lot less for the year than what we did the week before Christmas at mail order this year. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you go from two people and just probably you know a couple thousand dollars in revenue to seven hundred team members and and sixty four million dollars now. Granted, that's been over a, a big period of time, but yeah, dude, you, you, thirty-seven years. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, an overnight success. One w- of my favorite totally overnight. What one of my favorite Blink of an eye. One of my favorite quotes from Bill Gates. He said, "People overestimate what they yeah. can do in a year, and dramatically underestimate what they can do yeah. in ten years." And, I agree. And I want you to take our listeners just through kind of the thought process of getting to the place where you actually sit down and create a plan and then just working that plan like a dog day in and day out. Because I think for for many business owners, that's what's so hard to do is, number one, to create the plan, but then to have that stick to itness where they actually follow the plan that they created and, and they don't get distracted by some bright, shiny object. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to slightly reframe it, but I think, you know, Lauren already knows, but we, we start with a vision, not a plan. Yep. Uh, and I think they're different. Tell um, us the difference, Ari. Yeah. So the vision is in our terminology, and I'm not here to dispute other people's, they can have their own. But for us, uh, when we talk about a vision, uh, we're talking about a, uh, written document that describes 
uh, at a particular point in time in the future, what success looks like, feels like, so it has emotional content, uh, as well as strategic details of what you've achieved. So a written document that describes success at a particular point in time in the future. So it's not a two-line statement. Uh, it's very specific. Our 2020 vision is about nine pages long, and it talks about uh, being an educational destination. It talks about having fun. It talks about opportunity and responsibility for everybody in the organization. It talks about our commitment to staying only in the Ann Arbor area and having managing partners in the business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, without a clear vision of where you're going. <laughs> a, the odds of getting to where you want to be are very, very low. It doesn't mean you can't work hard. It doesn't mean you can't achieve things. It doesn't mean good things won't happen. But the odds of creating a future that in your heart you really singularly or collectively want to create are very low. Uh, so how do you do it? You start by, we have a whole process. I mean, Lauren, but I've written about it. Part one of the business book has the most about it, but it comes up in all of them. Uh, we have a two-day Zinc train seminar on it. We teach it to our hourly employees. Uh, which goes back to your earlier question about training. Uh, and it's a process anybody can do. Uh, it, it's really about learning to, to get out of your heart what your dreams are. Uh, most of the business world has been trained to try to figure out the right answer, which is the same as a seven-year-old getting taught in class to figure out the right answer. The problem is it's not your answer. <laughs> and what your mother wants or the business world wants or Lauren wants or I want for you is not real. It doesn't really matter that much. What matters is what you want and what success will feel like for you. And I will just say that process changed my life. It changed our organization. Uh, we've taught it up to, I don't know how many thousands of people in the U S uh, I've taught it abroad. It, it's, it's literally, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm overstating, but literally it's transformative. Uh, it's super powerful. And to answer your question about how you stick to it, I'm going to tell you that it's a natural human process that everybody who's achieving greatness already is doing in their head. <laughs> and everybody who started a business had a vision in their head of what they wanted to create. But like Paul and I in 1993, you might have fulfilled it. And if you don't write a new one, then it's just sort of sort of treading water or trying to stay afloat or trying not to screw up. And, you know, we all know in sports, if you play not to lose – you're going to lose. <laughs> and so the vision is huge. Uh, you know, the vision, let's say I, I run every day, but I don't, I'm a introverted anarchist uh, afternoon runner, so I don't <laughs> run races. But, but everybody, everybody who runs a race, a marathon or whatever, they all envision what it's going to feel like to cross the finish line. And they all start to, you know, have moments where they want to stop. I mean, it's totally normal, right? Every day, you know, whatever we think about, what, what if I just walk out? What if I quit? What if I never come back? Those are normal thoughts. But when you've envisioned a different future, when you've shared that vision with others, I think clearly it helps us hold course. Uh, I, I think, you know, I always give the example, too, of any anybody who's got young kids has, I guarantee, envisioned in their head a positive future with their positive relationship uh, with their child when the child is an adult. Yeah, you know, everybody does it. And, and, and without question, it helps to keep the parent from killing the kid when they really get frustrated because they know if they do, they'll never achieve that vision. So I, I think having the vision really helps you hold course because you've committed to this future. You've shared that commitment publicly. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't change your mind, but it really reduces the odds of the shiny object you asked about distracting you. And, I, and I'll just say last, and then I'll, I'll let you go to the next question. But honestly, I realize the only difference between running a marathon and a forced march is that in the former running a marathon, you made a conscious decision to go for greatness and push through. And in the forced march, you're going to do as little as you have to to not get shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I love the, the marathon analogy. One of our authors, Pat Williams, who's the founder of the Orlando Magic basketball team, he, he mm -hmm. likes to say that 
you, you know, when you start a business, it's exciting, you know, just like at the start of a race, you know, there's a band and there's balloons and there's the start line and there's a lot of fans there that are there to cheer you on. And of course, at the end of the marathon or at the end of the race, there's the finish line with the band and the balloons and the crowd. But but it's the muck in the middle. It's, you know, mile 13 of the 26-mile marathon where things really get tough. And, you know, when you have that clear vision, like you just mentioned, and then you reflect on that vision when you get to that muck in the middle, I, I think that's yeah. where the great businesses are able to persevere. Well, and the great people. I mean, it's no different for a teacher or a parent or a poet. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, the, these are all in the natural laws of business list. Uh, absolutely, uh, you know, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who wrote a great book called Confidence, said, you know, partway through everything always looks like a failure. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, it's just the nature of life. I mean, it's it's hard to get to greatness. The difference is, in part, is the people who stick with it. And there's a lot of work. Uh, Daniel Coyle, uh, in, uh, I think it's in Talent Code, he wrote, uh, you know, literally physiologically, there is a difference in the energy that comes when we're committed to a, a future of our choice. And I, I it's totally my experience. And then back to your earlier question, how do you get people engaged? Well, when they're writing personal visions for their own life, then they have that energy too. And, and that starts to, to translate into the ecosystem when you're surrounded just like on a winning whatever basketball team or in a, in a world-class orchestra, when you're surrounded by people going for greatness, you're, you start going for greatness, too, because everybody else is, right? So it just creates that healthy ecosystem that we all want to create. Ari, it's, a, it's an amazing story going from the deli to, uh, I think you said, 12 businesses. But don't tell me you, you started 12 businesses and they all succeeded. You you, you must have had a couple that failed along the way. I didn't say that. No, you didn't. You said it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, tell we, us, what, we tell us about one, one that didn't work. We had one close. We had one close. Uh, you know, I, I think what I look at is, you know, people, uh, you, you didn't ask it this way, but people very regularly, you know, they're like, what's your biggest success or your proudest moment? What's your biggest mistake? You know, and I, I the anarchism uh, work has really taught me to stop thinking hierarchically and stop looking for the biggest and the worst and the big failure and the big success. And to really, I, I really look at it every day we're, we're succeeding and failing all the time usually simultaneously <laughs> you know so in our world there's one table that's having a great dining experience and the next one their food was undersalted or overcooked or the service you know the server didn't smile enough or whatever and it's all happening at the same time and i think it's really the focus on those little things both building the successes and minimizing the mistakes that's really where it's at and 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 you know in a forest in a natural ecosystem i mean literally on the same tree you could have one branch that's dying while the tree is thriving and i think that i, I don't want to dismiss the question because yes we had a business that closed but i i think the key is to look at the little things because that's what gets you to the long-term success is to build every minute on the positives and every minute trying to minimize the mistakes you're listening to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. My guests are Adam Witte, founder of Advantage Media, and Ari Weinzweig, co-founder of Zingerman's. If you have a question or a comment, call quick. We're running out of time. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Yeah, Ari, I want to talk about um, your commitment to service. Uh, we mm -hmm. hear all about customer service, and at the end of the mm -hmm. day, you know, great customer service is a choice. There's some companies that embrace it. Everything's a choice. Well, right. Everything's a choice. There's some companies that embrace it and choose it, and there's other companies that yep. try to get by with the least amount of service possible. Um, tell, yep. me, tell me from a culture perspective and also from a bottom line perspective what mm -hmm. choosing to be great in service has done for your business. Well, I think the... Yes, I will do that. And I actually would just suggest that it actually, you could look at it on a national level too, <laughs> because it's a life skill uh, and it's a way to approach life. But uh, I certainly didn't grow up in a customer service mindset. I grew up in a family of academics, doctors, psychologists, and lawyers. So I was pretty much clueless about service. Um, but uh, I, I. It's amazing I you it's survived. Huge. Well, you know. Uh, there's, I, you know, I wouldn't say I, I didn't grow up in a rich family. I didn't grow up in a poor family. You know, I had a lot of upside, some downside, like every, like many people that are listening right now. But 
uh, I, I think service is huge. I mean, it's it's really having it's it's again on the natural laws list. I mean, I think that's our work is to serve, right? And uh, servant leadership is a big piece of what we do. Uh, that's you know comes from Robert Greenleaf's work in I think 1979. He wrote his book, Servant Leadership. I've written about my application, our application of it in part two of the uh, Zingerman's Guide to Good Leading series. You know, that's the idea that we as leaders are there to serve the organization first and foremost, not the other way around. So the organization isn't there to, to serve us. It's basically the John Kennedy uh, famous statement, paraphrases, you know, ask not what the country could do for you, ask what you could do for the country. This is about the organization. And one of the, the key elements of that for us is that literally we treat the staff like our customers. And I think that's literally how I go to work. It's not a figurative statement. I literally think of people as my customers. So when staff member complains, my job is to handle it by, by using the five steps to handling a customer complaint, which is what we teach. And I wrote about it in a little service book I did that we use every day when hopefully when customers complain. Uh, it's to follow the three steps to great service, you know, with staff in the same way that we try to follow it with customers. And I just think it makes for an infinitely more generous uh, giving, caring, uh, kind, uh, in the context of the new pamphlet, artful and elegant ecosystem, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If if We have found in our business, Lauren, that if you choose a path to great service, it's going to, number one, attract better people because quality people want to be a part of an organization that's committed to great service. But also, it's going to make your life as the leader, as the entrepreneur, as the CEO a whole lot more enjoyable, too, because you're going to have talented people that are working together, that are trying to help each other and take good care of your customers. And, you know, it just makes business a whole lot more fun. All right. We're almost out of time. Um, you said you've been doing this for almost 40 years. What, uh, what drives you today? What, what do you focus on and what are you most passionate about now? Well, uh, all of it. Uh, I, I, like I said, I mean, this new pamphlet just came out is, is sort of my realization. I'm sure others have had the thought out in the world, but just, you know, that, that business and life are like art in a good way. And that uh, if we would all, you know, back to that belief cycle I described earlier, if we all started to approach uh, our businesses, our organizations, because it's the same for nonprofits as in for-profits. If we approach our lives and our relationships as if we're making art, that we would pay a whole lot more attention uh, and be a lot more caring and gentle and elegant in every tiny thing that we do. Because when you're making a painting, every brushstroke is going to matter. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of us have been raised, you know, to live parts of our lives uh, as Ellen Langer, the Harvard psychologist called mindlessly, which is where we're not paying attention. And, you know, people don't mean to do it, but they're rude to the cashier at the right aid or whatever. And I, I think that's a brushstroke in our lives. So, uh, so for me, that's, that's been really, uh, quite a big thing. And then I've been working more and more on this idea of business as ecosystem, which I wrote about in the introduction in part four of the book. And I have a feeling a pamphlet's coming out on that down the road too, because it, it continues to grow for me. Ari Weinzweig, thank you so, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. We need you to come back and do it again. Yeah, happy to do it. And just so people have it, my direct email is Ari at Zingerman's.com. Uh, if they have questions that didn't get answered on the show, they're more than welcome to email me directly too. Very generous. Thank you very much. Thanks also to Adam Witte. Appreciate you joining me here today. Um, this has been a uh, a real pleasure. We're here live every Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I'm Lauren Feldman. You can find me on Twitter, at L Feldman. This has been Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 